Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 341. As part of our Art of Living author interview series, our guest today is Rich Garlgaard, author of the new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich Carlgaard is an award-winning entrepreneur turned publisher, columnist, author, television commentator, private investor, and board director. And Carlgaard is the publisher of Forbes magazine and writes a bi-weekly column, Innovation Rules. Late Bloomers by Rich Carlgaard is a look at what some would call a taboo subject. Rich Carlgaard and I discuss the many real-life examples in the book to show that Late blooming is more common than what we might have been led to believe. We live in a culture that places too much emphasis on early success, which undermines those who need more time to blossom. In our interview, Rich Carlgaard talks about what's led us to this point in time. I think society has become obsessed with early achievement, starting in grade school, middle school, certainly high school certainly the college applications, the college that one gets into. And think of a conveyor belt where we're putting these children on and all along the way, they get tested, 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 and they are pushed, pushed, pushed to become really good test takers. And the conveyor belt is headed in one direction. It is headed in the direction of maximizing one's test scores like the SAT. And what this conveyor belt does is is that it sorts out all the differing skills that human beings have. Not everybody is designed to sit down and excel on a written test in three hours. That, of course, is our guest today, Rich Carlgaard. We're going to be talking to Rich Carlgaard today about his new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Rich also shares the psychological and neuroscientific research that reveals that late blooming is, in fact, normal. The standout chapter for me was the strengths and gifts that late bloomers possess and how much late blooming offers. As someone in their early 60s who is definitely a late bloomer, I will tell you this chapter made me feel better and more confident in my abilities. The book, which is excellent, offers some awesome tips which are included throughout the chapters on how to step into one's potential and power. For late bloomers, being able to see their weaknesses as strengths is paramount for their self-esteem. You're going to love this book. If you think you're a late bloomer, and Rich Carlgaard tells us that so many of us are, you'll love this interview. And you will love Rich Carlgaard's new book entitled Late Bloomers. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Rich Carlgaard. Rich Carlgaard, author of the wonderful, I will say that right up front, Rich, uh, the wonderful new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's great to talk to you. Uh, I'll gush for just a second and I'll tell you, I read the book. Uh, I loved it. It is wonderful. And I've I've shared it. (laughs) Actually, I've, I've shared it with my son, my nephew, my wife. Interestingly enough, my wife really wasn't a late bloomer. She's she's very much an early bloomer, but as a late bloomer myself, uh, the book definitely spoke to me and and certainly to my son and my nephew. I've heard you say that we're all late bloomers to a certain extent. 
How so? Well, your wife might be more of a late bloomer than she thinks, or she might have opportunities to bloom multiple times throughout her life. And that's why I meant that we all are potential late bloomers. I use the example of my college roommate, Bob. Bob, to me, was an early bloomer. Bob was Phi Beta Kappa in his junior year at, in college. He went off to law school, starred in law school, joined what became the most powerful law firm in Silicon Valley, made partner in five years. Now, by my lights, because I was such a late bloomer, Bob was an early bloomer. But I recently ran into Bob and told him about the book that I was working on. And he said, no, no, you have that wrong. I consider myself a late bloomer. And then he proceeded to describe all the frustrations and slights that he had in high school. So you never know about people. I think my wife would say she's probably still blooming. And I think I would I would agree. She's, she's in the arts, but uh, she kind of self-identified that early on and uh, has, has just kind of stuck with it. You, you also talk about this really interesting uh, phase and in, in this term, the conveyor belt, that, that it can limit blooming and it, it even shortchanges society. So tell us about the conveyor, describe the conveyor belt and what it means. Well, sure. I think society has become obsessed with early achievement, starting in grade school, middle school, certainly high school, certainly the college applications, the college that one gets into. And think of a conveyor belt where we're putting these children on, and all along the way, they get tested, 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 and they are pushed, pushed, pushed to become really good test takers, to become really good focused students. And the conveyor belt is headed in one direction. It is headed in the direction of maximizing one's test scores like the SAT and getting into the highest possible college uh, is judged by U.S. News and Rural Reports rankings or any number of rankings that are out there. And what this conveyor belt does is, is that it sorts out all the differing skills that human beings have. Not everybody is designed to sit down and excel on a written test in three hours. Moreover, not everybody comes from the socioeconomic background where they know it's even important to do that, to prep, 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 to spend thousands of dollars in practicing for the test, to take the right courses in high school, the right advancement, advanced placement courses, to construct essentially a bulletproof resume that will look impressive to a college admissions director. That's where the conveyor belt is taking all of America's children, teenagers, and young adults today. And the truth is the vast majority of children, teenagers, and young adults are overlooked on such a conveyor belt. I describe in my book where I was completely unprepared for college that while my roommate Bob, the early bloomer, had a considerable ability to go to the library and sit down and focus on his homework for four hours and then take a break and come back and type up a 30-page paper based on the notes that he had taken while he was studying, I wandered off into the library and studied back issues of Sports Illustrated, 
Now, I was following my curiosity. I was not focused at all. And that hurt my grades. I describe in the book how more than a dozen years later, my curiosity paid off in spades when I started a magazine of my own. But the conveyor belt did not recognize that. The conveyor belt wanted me to get back on and move toward this finish of great grades, great graduate school, great first job. And only a small percentage of people do well on that conveyor belt. So that's why I created this visual metaphor of conveyor belt, because really what a conveyor belt is, it's something that sorts machine parts. And that's exactly how we consider children, teenagers, and young adults today. They're machines that society is moving toward what society perceives to be an optimal end for them. And we're not treating them like human beings with just a wide array of gifts and passions that will bloom when they bloom. There's science behind this too. And I really appreciated that. I I enjoyed, as as I say, I enjoyed the book, but I really appreciated the science and this idea of brain development, brain research. It parallels what you're writing about. So what's going on with our brains that bears out much of what it is that you're writing about in the book? Well, let me back up just a little bit and say that when I set out to write Late Bloomers, I wanted everything in the book to be validated by science. I didn't want this to be a hopey, feely, inspirational book. I wanted to inspire people, but I didn't want to start out from that perspective. I wanted everything in the book, every single chapter, to be grounded on what the science said. And and it was my obligation to follow what the science said. Now, when you look at neuroscience, it's really it really works against this idea that 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 we have to measure teenagers at age 16 when they sit down and take standardized tests. And we have this false idea that once measured, we can forever predict their course in life, where they're going to go to university. Well, that might be true. Where they're going to get their first job, that might be true. And then how they're going to do well throughout their lives. That's not true at all. You take, for example, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the seat of adult maturity, the ability to look into the future, to think about consequences. Most teenagers, it will really shock you, Paul, aren't really good at considering future consequences of their <laughs> their actions. They act impulsively, Act any ask any car rental firm <laughs> that they like to rent cars to people under 25. They'll charge a premium based on that. Well, the prefrontal cortex of the brain doesn't even fully mature until about age 25, and that's an average So think of a bell curve. Some people's prefrontal cortex matures a lot earlier. For some people, it might not be until 30 years old or their early 30s. So that's one aspect of it. Here we are testing people at age 16 when they're only two-thirds of the way toward the full maturation of their prefrontal cortex. Then after the prefrontal cortex is finally matured, a most amazing thing happens according to a neuroscientist named Elkanen Goldberg with, at NYU. He said only in our mid-20s and early 30s, there's this amazing flowering of neural networks that connect the two hemispheres of the brain, the creative side and the logical side. Only then does that happen. 
And that really is where we become not only adults in the way we behave and think about consequences, but we become tremendously productive adults. Being able to perceive a creative insight through the the right side of the brain and then move that insight into the logical side of the brain and the stored memory side of the brain, which is the left side, is where real creative insight comes because raw creativity doesn't do much good if you can't harness it to something productive, whether it is a, a work of art, a work of architecture, or an idea that's going to move you forward in business. If you turn a child loose in Disneyland, they will be overwhelmed with creative insights. They will see things that they've never seen before. But what you know, they, they will then randomly run around the park and forget what they had seen two minutes ago. Well, you can't, you can't conduct an adult life like that. But neither can you conduct a healthy, uh, fertile, rewarding adult life if you've shut off your creativity. What you need is both. You need to perceive new things, and then you really need to work on, well, what's the value of this thing? So if you try to do that consciously, you'll just get all tied up in knots. And the beauty of the brain is when these neural networks connecting the two hemispheres of the brain, or what Dr. Goldberg at NYU calls the salience network, when that begins to develop, then that conversation between the creative side and the logical side is happening at a subconscious level, which is why we become better at pattern recognition. We certainly become uh, better at wisdom. All of those things begin to bloom in middle age, and they stay on a high plateau for a long time. In fact, if we stay physically healthy and mentally engaged, they will stay at a high plateau really until the, the end of our lives. We're with Rich Carlgaard, author of the new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. We talked a little bit, uh, Rich Carlgaard, about, about society and how some of this really, this conveyor belt shortchanges. It also produces a bunch of pressure, and testing at 16 produces a bunch of pressure. What does this emphasis on youth really do to us as a society? Oh, I think it's causing great harm both to the youth and to the parents. A week ago, as we talked today, a week ago, we all opened up the newspapers to learn about this college bribery scandal, where parents that were so obsessed Mm -hmm. about getting their children into elite universities, they were so obsessed about that, that they, they bribed college admissions people, they bribed college coaches, and they committed illegal acts. And something like 50 parents are now facing potential um, felony charges for doing that. So it's not only the, the youth that we're hurting, we're hurting families. Let's just concentrate on the youth. Rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide have near doubled since the year 2000. Millennials are not happy campers. They're not happy campers for a number of reasons. It was their bad luck to come into the workforce after the devastating 2008 and 2009 recession. But but their unhappiness goes way beyond that. It goes to crushing college debt on this belief that mostly propagated by their high school counselors, their parents, and their community 
that they not only had to go to college right away after high school, they had to go to the most elite college as, uh, you know, as ranked by U.S. News and World Report or many other ranking systems, or they would somehow fall down the social hierarchy. Well, colleges are keenly aware of this. The price of college education all in, including room and board and books, has exceeded the rate of inflation in the United States by a factor of three since 1970. If people are desperate to go to the most elite college that they can, the colleges have almost unlimited pricing power, and they've taken advantage of that. So somebody coming out of a, of a really good private school, you know, a four-year degree costs a quarter of a million dollars. Even at flagship public universities like the University of California or the University of Michigan or Wisconsin, you know, you name them, University of Virginia. If you look at all the, the really elite public flagship schools, they're, uh, the, the cost of a four-year degree all in, if you don't have a scholarship, is in the area of $150,000. So we've created burdens on families. We've created burdens on, on teenagers who are full of anxiety and depression. And the results are tragic. There was a story in Atlantic Monthly in late 2015 called the Silicon Valley Suicides. And there were six suicides in Palo Alto's high schools in one year. And there were more than 40 hospitalizations for quote unquote suicide ideation during that time. Now, Palo Alto, if the listeners aren't aware, is right across the the street, literally, from Stanford University. And the public schools are very high pressure living in the shadow of, of Stanford. It just assumed that everybody's in the 99th percentile. But of course, that can't be true. One of the boys who did kill himself had left signs on social media, including postings that he was exhausted from getting up at 3.30 in the morning to keep up with his advanced placement courses. So that's the kind of pressure we're putting on young kids. We're putting financial pressure on families and young adults. And we're leaving kids not, um, well, we're leaving them exhausted and brittle in the words of Stanford psychology professor Carol Dweck, who teaches a freshman psychology class. And she said the kids she sees at Stanford today are brittle and exhausted. They don't want to mar their perfect record, she said. Now, anybody who gets into Stanford today, 3% admissions rate, um, my goodness, you have to have a 4.3 or a 4.5 average. I don't even know in the grade inflated scale today, but they have to get pretty much perfect scores. They have to get close to perfect SATs. And they have to demonstrate some real leadership in a sport or outside activity. And those are just the table stakes. They have to do all of those. There's no room for being a kid. One counselor that's running around in Palo Alto today tells parents, this is just sick, that their kids shouldn't expect to see daylight for two years. They shouldn't go outside. Unless, of course, it's for an organized sport and they're doing it for applications purposes, not because they love the sport. They should spend the rest of the time making sure they check all the boxes on grades, test scores, etc. Now, we're 
wrecking kids. When you look at millennials, they are not happy generally. One marker that you can see is far less than Gen X's and, and baby boomers to a far lesser degree, they're going out and starting businesses. Well, how can you start a business if you're crushed by student debt? You need a job to, that's going to pay for that debt. To start a business means that you're, you, know, you have an uncertain income, and, and if you're investing in the growth of your company, you're probably taking the least amount of income that you can to survive while you build the company. And that's always been a great strength of the American economy, generations going out and starting companies, as Steve Jobs did, as uh, Mark Zuckerberg did. And today, that's really slowed down. So on all markers of society, societal health, um, generational health, individual health, family health, we're going in the wrong direction. Sick, yes. Uh, wrecking it our kids. Yes. We're causing... It literally is sick, Paul. We're mm-hmm. causing illness at all of those levels, societal, familial, and individual. How do we reverse some of this, Rich Cargar? Well, what I wanted to do with my book, Late Bloomers, was to start a national conversation about this. I'm not a trained clinical psychologist. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm simply a person who goes out and does the research and tells the stories. That's that's what I do at Forbes, uh, although in a different realm, really talking about mainly what I do at Forbes is write about the economy and the effect of technology on the economy. But this book, I felt I needed to start a national conversation because all around me, where I live in Silicon Valley, I'm seeing families torn apart. I'm seeing kids not, not, not happy. I mean, and when I say not happy, I don't mean just sort of normal teenage disappointments. I mean, they're not happy in a serious way, that they have anxiety and depression that is off the scale. And so I I would like everybody to to talk about this. Some things that I might suggest is that a lot of of kids, and this may be truer of boys than girls, simply are not suited to sit down in a classroom environment and pay attention. I think you see that pretty clearly starting in grade in, in first grade or even kindergarten, the levels of ADHD and the idea that we're going to give these kids drugs, powerful drugs, simply so they can sit still. You know, <laughs> right off the bat, I would question I would question that. Maybe these kids need more time outdoors. Maybe we need to do as Finland does and not even start school until age seven and not teach them to read in kindergarten, but let them be children and let them play with blocks and, and, and physical puzzles and, and all of that. By the way, a, the index of the happiest countries in the world just came out a week or two ago, and at the top of the list was good old Finland. I personally wouldn't want to live in Finland with those long winters. You could be happy in Finland. I would think you could be happy anywhere as long as society isn't trying to make you unhappy the way we are unwittingly making kids and families unhappy today. So I I think starting kids later, uh, letting them be kids longer, I think that shop class, what we used to call shop classes or classes that prepare kids whose gifts aren't in the academic world uh, and may have more hands-on gifts, um, you can certainly look at a shop class today and modernize it. 
but we only teach or we only offer skilled trades in one out of 20 public high schools today in this mistaken belief that everybody should go to college and go to college right away. Boy, if I was an employer and, and I had a, and I had I was looking at somebody who was in the skilled trades and then went back at age 26 to get a degree in mechanical engineering. That's a very valuable employee. Just because you go into the skilled trades doesn't mean you have to stay in the skilled trades. It means you can go to college at any time. And I'll bet you when you decide to go to college at 26, you're not going to waste your time. You're going to be very focused. You know what you want to do. And you're not going to be foolish about the way you spend money. And then finally, I become a big believer in, in, in gap years. Uh, take time off before you go to college or taking two years off between the sophomore and junior years in college. Now, there are many forms of gap years that are already out there. Uh, the Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormons, um, send their kids on a mission between the sophomore and junior years. These last two years where the kids are kind of out there on their own with minimal supervision, um, doing what can't be a lot of fun, uh, which is going out and proselytizing and probably having a lot of doors slammed in their face. But they do it and it toughens them up. Uh, military service, if you don't like the word military, uh, you could make it civilian service. But when you look at countries that are similarly affluent to the United States and you look at those with some kind of mandatory service, the outcomes for the young adults are much better. A lower crime, lower rates of alcoholism, etc. So look to countries like Israel, Singapore, Switzerland, Sweden, our good friend Finland again, Denmark. Um, there are many countries that, that, that have either mandatory military service or as an option civilian service if you're opposed to military. All of those, I think, create more mature, more well-rounded kids. And particularly with civilian service and military service, I think a, a, a problem that is running parallel to this, to this obsession with early achievement in the United States is the hardening of economic classes in the United States, that there's less social mobility between the classes than there used to be. And one of the great things about military or civilian service is that it mixes up classes. So you get to see how other people live. And that does a great deal, I think, to encourage empathy and a and a much better, well-rounded view of your fellow humans. My own son is serving an LDS mission and uh, has been on uh, Guam and Micronesia for almost the last uh, two years, about 18 months. And uh, he's getting a lot of doors slammed in his face, no question about it. But in in letters home and communication with us, he's he's learning about the world. He is learning about life. He's learning about different cultures and he's really very much focused on what he's going to do next. And so I really, I'm a believer in, in all of this, uh, Rich Carlgaard. And, and one of the chapters that I like so much was this oh, idea of- may I, may I just say, when I said what I said about uh, the LDS church, I had no idea you were a member of the <laughs> yeah. LDS church. Yeah. So this, yeah. isn't, this wasn't a setup. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, where I was uh, um, uh, trying to flatter the host, Paul. Um, in my book, I have a story of a, of a young man who was a terrible student in high school. He was from Utah. He was, he was a member of the LDS Church. He went on a mission to the Far East. And it turned out that he was very skilled at something that the school hadn't revealed. He's very skilled at language. 
he became such a good language translator that he then became a teacher in the Far East, and now he works for the U.S. Defense Department as a language uh, translator in their intelligence operations. None of that would have been discovered on the typical high school track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent that's an excellent story. Uh, and and right, we we did not rehearse any of this. I, I will tell you too, just as a, as a as a bit of an aside. My son is in Micronesia and Guam. He is serving uh, in a couple of locations where the language is not a written language. One of those islands is Yap. The other island is Chuk. He's learned to speak Chuk, which um, may not bring about a, a job in the Defense Department. But nonetheless, there's uh, value in in preserving many of these languages and these cultures. And so he's learning he's learning a lot of of really important lessons. And so I think he would. He would also agree that it's worth the wait. It's certainly, and again, this is the title of one of your chapters that I enjoyed so much, where you identify some of the strengths of late bloomers. Tell us what those strengths are. Well, I led off with curiosity, and I recounted my own story. I grew up in North Dakota. My dad was a high school coach who became a public school athletic director, and my mom was a housewife. And um, uh, I participated in sports. I wasn't that good, except in running, I was decent. And I went off to junior college because my grades in high school, I, I, I was high mediocre, to be candid. I had a 3.2 grade average. I barely made the honor roll, which is the top 20%. I think I was 18th or 19th percentile or percent uh, in, in my graduating class. And, uh, and I was a good runner. I qualified for the state track meet, but I didn't score. I didn't finish in the top five in my race, the mile run. So I went off to junior college. I got better as a runner. Some combination of being from a small state and being a, the captain of my cross-country team and a misinterpretation by, by the Stanford University coach about one of my times got led me to pull off a, a big upset, getting into Stanford. Now, getting into Stanford when I went was a lot easier than today, uh, not only for the reasons I just described, but they also took 25% of the applicants, and they took a large number of junior college transfers because California has a big community college system. They don't do that today. Anyway, when I got there, school was way over my head, and I described going off to the library with my college roommate who had become a great lawyer in Silicon Valley, and he had this tremendous capacity to sit down at a study carol and focus, and I would wander off into the library stacks, and, and my favorite magazine was Sports Illustrated, and I read every back issue of Sports Illustrated, and I read them multiple times from the inception year in 1954 through the present time, and I learned by osmosis what made Sports Illustrated so good. I just began to kind of pick up things. What differentiates really lively writing from boring writing, uh, how to write headlines, how to write captions. I didn't do this as a study project. I did it simply because I was curious about my favorite magazine. Well, I got off to a very slow start in my adult life at age 25. I could still hold no job greater than that of a security guard and temporary typist and dishwasher. But I did have the opportunity in my middle 30s 
to be, uh, I, I'd finally gotten my act together. I was a technical writer at a research institute and a part-time ad, advertising copywriter at that time. And a friend of mine and I decided to create, at the dawn of the desktop publishing era, with a Macintosh and a laser printer, Silicon Valley's first business magazine. Now, he was in charge of the business side, and I was in charge of the product side. What should this magazine be? What should it look like? What should it sound like? What kind of attitude should it have? Well, I didn't know anything about business. To me, business was boring. Kind of funny, you know, that I'm the publisher of Forbes now. Now, but I found business at the time was something I didn't understand, and to the degree I understood it, it seemed boring. It was all about accounting and things like that. And uh, so I thought, if we're going to do a business magazine about Silicon Valley business, let's make one that was really lively and with lively headlines, and let's not be afraid to punch people in the nose too, and and get some attention. So my model, of course, was Sports Illustrated. I wanted to create the Sports Illustrated of high-tech business magazines, and that's what I did. And within two years, everybody was paying attention to us. People like Bill Gates were giving me um, hours and hours of interview time. And three years after founding it, Steve Forbes came out to Silicon Valley to have a look at us, and uh, he hired me to start a business magazine on technology with the same attitude and the same feel. So I went from being this security guard at age 25 to reporting directly to Steve Forbes about a dozen years later, all because those times, those many, many hours uh, pursuing my own curiosity in the library stacks at Stanford, which did me no good on my grades. In fact, they hurt my grades. It made all the difference in my career. I just didn't know it at the time. And we know that children have more curiosity, they have more raw curiosity than adults. And to the degree that late bloomers retain their childhood attributes, that they're slower to mature and develop, curiosity, letting curiosity run wild, as opposed to putting it off to the side because the conveyor belt is telling you to focus, Curiosity is a really good, it's a really good quality to have. It's the gift that keeps on giving throughout your whole, throughout your whole life. So it's a gift that late bloomers, not by, not by choice, but simply because they're late bloomers and they're, they don't have the ability to focus, that turns out to be very valuable for late bloomers. Fascinating. Wonderful stories, wonderful book. Rich Cargard, author of the book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. What a pleasure it is to talk to you. I highly recommend this book. I, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's a, it's a book that's unique uh, with all of the information, the facts, but it's also unique in, insofar as it's worth sharing it with others. <laughs> Rich Cargard, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing. Well, well thank you, Paul. I, you know what? I really want to, uh, one of the best, uh, uh, I'm not a member of the LDS mm -hmm. church myself. I belong to a church in, in, um, on the San Francisco Peninsula in Silicon Valley called Menlo Church. Uh, its pastor is John Ortberg, who's written a lot of books. And he connected me uh, to a woman who runs the Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, out of the Fuller Theological Seminary, which is, along with Princeton Theological Seminary, the, the leading, uh, one of the leading Protestant theological seminaries in the United States, uh, affiliated with the, the Presbyterian Church 
mainly. The woman who runs the Fuller Youth Institute said after reading an early version of Late Bloomers, it made me want to go out and hug my kids. So I want to start a national conversation about this early this obsession with early achievement. And I want to get parents permission to give themselves a break. Every parent today is worried whether they're putting too much pressure on their kids or not enough. Well, every kid is created by God. They're all going to be different. You know, love them all, enjoy their successes, be with them with their failures. In fact, even laugh together at their failures as they progress. And if you do that, your children are going to be fine. They're going to bloom when God meant them to bloom and all will be good. Wonderful advice. So true. Thank you, Rich Carl. Just a wonderful book again and uh, so generous with your time. We really appreciate it, Rich Carl. And uh, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you, Paul. My thanks to Rich Carlgaard, author of the new book, Late Bloomers, who likes to say, and I agree, not everybody blooms early or on schedule. And thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience, because you're getting better and everyone makes it in their own due time. Everybody has a life course of their own that no one else can determine for them. Life works itself out. No one else can decide what someone else's future should be or what it's going to be. There is nothing worse than when we as adults start labeling our kids or grandkids as losers or hopeless in, of all places, grade school. Many thanks to Rich Carlgaard. I hope everyone with kids, grandkids, or responsible for kids reads your book. Let's talk about better, the Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.